0: there's something you need to hear. Our wildlife is under attack like never before. In a new 12-part series, Charlie Moores and Ruth PC explore the concept of a war on wildlife. With special guests and short interviews with activists, researchers and campaigners, this one is not to be missed. Find it where you find podcasts, as well as on the free Lush Player app and you can even follow at War on Wildlife on Twitter.
1: Hello, welcome, uh, welcome to uh, Tiny Revolutions. So the idea behind this podcast is we are talking about comedy as a force for positive social change, and. With that in mind, what, more of a perfect first guess can I get than Chappy or Sandy? So let's have a little round of applause. Thank you. Um,
0: I'm, a, I'm a bit worried, Tiffany. As you know, my nose has been growing lately. And I'm just really worried about the camera angle. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Wouldn't it be really <looking> awkward <laughs> if
1: I spoke to you like this? Is that, <laughs> is that natural? Uh, no. All right. Uh, um, so uh, Chappie is very, very easy for me to talk to because we've been friends for probably about 12 years since I first started in comedy. But Shappy is perfect for this show because she's someone who's always blended in a a, a great fashion, I believe, the political and the personal. Um, So I remember seeing one of your early sets on, I think it was like Michael McIntyre, where you talk about being Iranian and you speaking to your grandmother and being worried that she was gonna get bombed. (laughs) And her saying, Well, I've, it depends on when it happens because I'm just getting a new extension built. Oh, but so, I <laughs> that joke. Yeah. so I can obviously do a version of the joke not as well as Shappy can. But I remember that being a very early example of seeing someone in stand up who'd, who'd put together this kind of like a very, very personal take on polit- uh, political circumstance. So, you know, that's obviously always going to be part of what you do, right?
0: I I Never consciously, I have to say. Um, I I think, I'm glad you reminded me of that joke. I like that one. I never ever write them down. Isn't that terrible? (laughs) But um, I think at the time when I did that particular show, um, I was not long out of my twenties. And you know, having having gone through a, a period of all of my youth with Iran and Iraq, um, at war. It was, it was just a part of our reality that, that you had family um, in Iran that you never knew if, if they were going to be there when you woke up the next day and you know, when you, he- when you heard there were air raids in Tehran then you spend all your time the next morning trying to call them and of course the telephone lines would be down and that was our reality. Now my reality happens to have been <laughs> quite political um, and I felt very much Like all new comedians do, um, that what's the thing about me that stands out the most? Like in in London, I was kind of a bit more ordinary and normal, but then I'd, you know, go to, you know, not a working man's club, but somewhere, you know, in Leeds. Up north. Somewhere up north. (laughs) I just immediately thought. Where all, you know, and I was like, you know, 23 year old girl starting out in comedy with my little. West London accent and talking to these big, like 40 year old Yorkshire men that at the time seemed like twice the size and twice their age to a 23 year old. And I was like, they're just going to be looking at me going, what on earth has this um, young, you know, Middle Eastern southerner got to say to us. And I found talking about myself and acknowledging that I did, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, be like their cousin or their niece or, I think a lot of the time in comedy, people look for familiarity. They like comics who reflect their own life. They like comics who remind them of their grandma or their granddaughter or their Uncle Joe. It's sort of an unconscious bias, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's feeling at home with someone. And so when it comes to politics as well, then I found that people then liked what I do if they came from the left. Um, or they came from the right but were a bit racist and thought, "Wasn't oh, it lovely that she's <laughs> on the phone? You'd never know. Um, <laughs> she's one of the good ones. If only they were all like her." <laughs> and I acknowledge feeling that because those are feelings. Comedy is about emotion, right? So I would feel people, um, people like that, and I would say it, and then that becomes a political thing because anything that um, is you know, out of the
1: ordinary, out of what is typical,
0: it's kind of political most of the time.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like you, when you first start in comedy, you go out and you do jokes. It's about being funny. In the first instance, you're like, can I be funny for this period of time? And then as it goes on a bit longer, it's kind of about challenging people's perceptions or ideas and being a bit provocative and playful. And it's funny that you mentioned 40 year old blokes in Yorkshire, because for me, they were the 40 and 50 year old men up the creek Mm -hmm. where you talk about something a bit feminist and they go, I never thought about it like that girl. I liked that, you know, and they'll all of a sudden you've just changed something imperceptibly. And I do, I think that's what's so brilliant about what you do. I think you were the first person that I saw making jokes about that situation who was from it? Like if we if we look at Shappy's got an amazing book called A Beginner's Guide to Acting English. Worst title ever, but it is a good book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, weirdly, that the like the cover of the book kind of makes it. A- bit look like Chiclet. don't take I that I know I can't even do you know I'm but, so proud of my book that book but I, I don't talk
0: about it because the cover and the name make me cringe but the <laughs> inside bit once you get the part the acknowledgements are incredible
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so so a little bit of potted history uh, if you can tell people sort of how you came to be in the UK in the first place to give them a bit of...
0: okay well this is this is why my politics of course played a part especially when I was newer in my comedy, because you talk about yourself. So I came here as a refugee, um, child refugee. My dad's a writer and um, they tried to kill him without over- overly being dramatic. And it's interesting right now- <laughs> I,
1: love, I love how you've instantly gone, where can I get the comedy out of this? Let's not be overly dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> the horror of someone trying to kill my dad. <laughs> but you know those um,
0: Rosie Cooper, the MP Rosie Cooper recently, um, we found out she was a target of an assassination plot by a far-right group. And I, I kind of wanted to write to her and say, I know how that feels, and I know that ter- this, they didn't, they weren't able to do it, they were foiled because idiots were you know, bragging about it in a pub. we all one of being a terrorist, don't tell your friends down the pub. <laughs> um, I wanted to write to her and I go, I know that this killing someone as a terrorist is the tip of the iceberg. The idea is to terrorise them and everyone like them to shut them up, that this might happen to you if you speak out. And that never leaves you. And so when we were, when I was 11, uh, we had to go into hiding because terrorists were sent to Iran to shoot my dad as he took my brother and I to school. And the, 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 the plot was foiled by an informant and Scotland Yard scooped us up, took us into a safe place. And then we um, moved back to London and they gave my dad all this advice about how to stay safe, safe and my dad never adhered to any of it. We were still in the directory, you know, he still sort of took the Took <laughs> out an ad. Yeah. No, <laughs> Here we his, are. Our address and phone number was printed on the um, satirical newspaper that he published from right. home. So absolutely no security. He never took different routes to school. He was like, look, if they're gonna get you, they're gonna get you. But what, what it is, is instilling fear. Now that, Fear. It's only as adults um, that we've been. Uh, my brother and I've been able to acknowledge how much it affected us. It um, it makes you feel so terrified all the time, like post traumatic stresses, or it isn't something to be taken lightly. But both my brother and I were diagnosed with it way, way, way later in our lives, and it's like, oh gosh. And all of us as a family. And I wanted to write to Rosie Cooper and just go. I kind of get how you. How can you? How can you? Put one, you know, just get on with days and get on with your job. It, it's, it's, it's. Um, you sit there and you go, but I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. How could people want to kill me? And this is what I, I was a kid. I was eleven, and I think about these terrorists and go, my dad is the kindest person. He'd help you out. He'll, he'd find a mechanic He couldn't fix your car himself because he just barely knows how to turn one on. But he'd find you a mechanic if you needed one. And um, and it's, it wrecks. To an extent, your trust in other people. And so when I first started stand up, a lot of the residues of that was, were, were in it. And I kind of got quite disheartened when people were like, um, oh, she ever talks about it was being Iranian. It's like, well, we all tr- sort of, as comics, unravel ourselves. And the big thing in your life, whether it was a divorce, whether you were adopted, whether it was something out of
1: the ordinary that set you apart, is what you're going to talk about. Of course, because it's what makes you interesting on stage it's kind of like a form of therapy as well as well as being a force for social change it's like it it is therapy isn't it you're just there sort of pulling your guts out and also the idea of there then being fear when you get on stage when you had that fear did it help so with that fear in an early life did it make you go i'm gonna get up here and say whatever i like because essentially this isn't as scary oh
0: tiff i was terrified there was a a tabloid, a tabloid, a broadsheet journalist, who came to see the first show I did, which was um, called Asylum Speaker. And I talked about all this stuff and he lied. He said, she, she wanders around the stage um, with a swilling her pint. And he didn't say it was a pint of water. And then at the end he said, oh, the things she said, one wonders if she might not become a target like her father one day. My blood froze. I was in Edinburgh. You know, in Edinburgh, you're nuts anyway, right? Yeah. And my blood froze. I was like, oh, my gosh, that I'm going to target now. And the next day, these four people with hijabs came to my show. I was like, oh, my God, they're from the embassy. They must be from the Iranian embassy. And that was when all the um, judges from the... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did my whole show, editing it as I went, you know, all but saying, I'm totally cool. And, of course, they weren't. And the reason they weren't laughing is because they couldn't speak English and they were just very sweet... Um, tourists that had heard there's an Iranian Comic-Con and they thought they'd come along and support me. But the whole time I thought they wanted to kill me. (laughs) And, And I'm going to say this to you and hope that people understand the context, but what it did to me was gave me a real mistrust of openly Islamic people because as a child I thought they're the ones that want to kill us. Um, and obviously I, I was a child, so I can be forgiven for that. And I had parents to steer me through that. And I went, went to school with lots of Muslims and learned not to be an Islamophobic idiot. So now it's kind of tricky when we see so much Islamophobia. And I'm, and I'm like, you really need to... I, as a child, I had to differentiate between political Islam and ordinary believers. And it's it's a very ugly thing to see how people are not doing that right now. And, um... and do you,
1: I think as well, your mind can be changed when you're younger? Do you think it's still possible? I mean, in the broader context of what this is about as well, that through something like comedy or through you being on stage, or you talking about these experiences, people can, I find it's harder when people get to later in life, for example, you know, parents and grandparents and sometimes we we're, we're very forgiving aren't we we go oh well it's just their age and you go should it be though should that not be challenged should we mm. not like kind of you know do you think it's 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 there's ever a point where it's too late i don't i don't
0: think there is because i think most people want to live in harmony most people don't want to spend their lives fighting most people want their kids to get on with other people's kids it's when um people peddle fear that it becomes um, a problem and, and the internet is rife for that, you know.
1: It, I think it, it really, if you spend enough time on any of the social media like Twitter or Facebook, I mean, I have a story in my show that the one time I've actually racially profiled someone on a train with a backpack was the day after the London Bridge attacks and I'd spent five hours reading Twitter the night before. And it's kind of like, it was almost like I'd been radicalised the other way. Like, because I, my school, I was like really, really multicultural. And, you know, we're both, we grew up like not far from each other in West London. So West London's pretty multicultural.
0: But, you know, is it irrational that you did that, that you racially profiled him? Is that an irrational thing? Because the fact of the matter is that we've got bombs going off in our big cities. Yeah. And terrorists have done their job of, of, of instilling us with fear, and therefore your instinct might be for a few days after an attack is go into a carriage, yeah, where you can't see anyone that looks like the. People well, he was you've the seen. thing. That's... I don't
1: think that that's something we should beat ourselves up for. I I had a little panic because what actually happened was he sat opposite me, and then it, in my head I went. I feel really uncomfortable i'm just going to move one carriage but then i went i'd literally rather be blown up than have someone think i'm racist yeah (laughs) because at this moment in time with what's happening politically you know like that's uh this is something we've discussed before but it feels like increasingly on the left at the moment we are separated by all of our differences and the right united in what they don't like and it's the left that would pounce on you for doing that for going tiffany what how dare you do that just because he's a brown man with a rucksack on the train doesn't mean he's going to be a problem. Self. Well, it was actually because he had two mobile phones. <laughs> Genuinely, he had two mobile phones, and that set, that set off all kinds of alarm bells for me, because I'm like, who has two mobile phones apart from terrorists and drug dealers? He was having an affair. Oh, he has yeah. lapsed morals. He wasn't a killer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so you don't think it's too late for people to change that? No,
0: because it's, it's about um, ignorance, isn't it? And yeah. so then you become better at not being ignorant. For example, on the other side of it, because when I was a kid, um, when people like racially abused my family, they would do it in a Cockney accent. It would be, you know, you, you, that's, you know, middle class people have the same prejudice, but it manifests in, in different ways, right? So, you know, packies, go home, whatever, was said in a Cockney accent by, you know, working class people. So, for a long time, if I was on the tube and I heard working class accents, like as a sort of you know, 14, 15 year old kid, I'd be like, oh my God, any minute now they're going to call me a Packy. Any minute now they're going to say something really horrible. And, and I'm with a boy I really fancy, and I can't have someone call me a Packy in front of this guy I really fancy from school because that would be so embarrassing. And so I had to then go. No, Shab, not every working class person. You had to undo that that prejudice. I had to undo that, not only did I have to undo that prejudice, I went to school with kids like that. So my accent, I sort of adopted a middle class accent quite early on because to me, it sort of made me less of a target. Because class trumps race every time. Isn't that it's, terrible? It's, it's bizarre, <laughs> but, uh, isn't it? But, I was like, know, oh, I yes, can... I, I, yes I, I do see that I am indeed a packy, but look how well-spoken I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and
1: this is, this, this, this is how a nine-year-old is trained to think, yeah. you know. And then you... Um... Well, comedy comes in early doors as a defence mechanism, doesn't it? I mean, that's been said about comedy... A lot, but you're like, I can diffuse this if I make a joke out of it. I can take the awkwardness or the tension. I couldn't at the time.
0: I think at the time I just cried. But um, what I think, I mean, I don't know. I think being a stand-up is a disease. Personally, that desire to go out again and again and again, no matter how badly the previous time went, is, is a compulsion. With that said, I feel that it was such an important job for me to become professional in because it was my second chance at the playground. It was because, you you know, those jibes and stuff can make you feel so um, not in the gang, to say the least. Right. So you kind of create your own gang and then you kind of think, yes, yeah, you know, I'm in this comedy club,
1: I'm making you laugh. I love that. I love second chance at the playground. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way of putting it because uh, I've noticed, or it has been pointed out to me very delicately by my boyfriend, sorry now fiance, Gage. Now, uh, yeah, I know Beautiful. it's very I'm exciting. So glad I thought he said now. Oh no! He'll be excited when he finds out as well. Uh, so, um, <laughs> but uh, he pointed out to me often to get you to do something, all you have to do is say you can't do that. Mm. So mine is being told that I can't do a thing. It then becomes I'll show you, I will do it. I'll do better than everyone else, you know. Like, yeah. um, but it really is—it really is about all that stuff that happened in your childhood, and kind of going. Even if you had a nice childhood, just if you just didn't feel like you got enough love from one parent, that is enough to kind of drive you into the arms of stand-up comedy. But then I think the motives sort of change as you go along. Like, did you find? Did was there a point where you actively, because of what your dad does? So, is it? Probably best to describe your dad as a satirist really mm, yeah, yeah um, did you think i don't I actively don't want to be political because that's what he did
0: mm. Oh you know what i think I think i I tried to be more political because of him, and that was a mistake because I was trying to before I'd found my feet and think that my dad now he's, he's different um but when I first started, he'd come and see my shows and he'd say, but you didn't say anything. You didn't say anything. And, I, you know, everyone wants to, like, please their dad, right? Especially if you've had a dad like mine who's always been so busy. It's like, oh, I've got a kid. I'm interested in my kid because she's making me laugh. Great. Ford now, go. I need to go. Get my thing. <laughs> so I did sort of try. Oh, dad will like this. Dad will like that. And actually, it's nonsense because what my dad came to see me... Um, do a show, he hadn't come for years, and he came to see a show that I did that was massively about, um, have it, you know, porn addiction and um, really graphic and honest, um, sexually and about relationships. And my dad was in the audience the entire time. And afterwards he said, it was a very powerful feminist, piece of work, bravo, bravo. Oh. Well, you say, ah, oh, but I wish I'd had that at 23. Oh. You know what I mean? Now, now my parents have seen me sort of have two kids on my own. No man. They're a bit like, okay, got it. She's not going to do anything sort of conventionally. But but that thing about moving on, like, for example, the, I think one of the biggest cultural challenges that we've had is attitudes and acceptance of trans right. Um, people, right? And so... What's really interesting about um, when people, the older generation, my mum read a book um, about, um, written by a trans woman in Farsi, the Iranian language. Um, And she was telling me, because an an old friend of hers is is, uh, trans, and she was crying all the way through reading it. She goes, "Shappy, if you knew, if you knew what... And I just was quite heartened by that, because you'd think sort of a... 70 year old woman, and then recently an old friend of ours at the age of 60 um, transitioned. And I told my parents, because I I saw it on Facebook, and my mum was like, I always knew that there was something Inside that he was not able to express and I just thought it's really kind of beautiful and, and that she wouldn't have been like that 25 years ago even yeah, you know when I was at university. She did think homosexuality um, Was to get attention
1: Right, you know, right. She, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: the fashion now, isn't it? It's the fashion, but she's grown her world's grown She's watched me. She's watched my brother. She's read. She's engaged You know, she doesn't want her grandchildren my kids to live in a world where they hate
1: anyone. So she's I think it, it does have, it sometimes comes down to when they can be personally affected or, mm. or see uh, or know someone that, uh, that then minds can be changed. Having said that, my parents are in their 70s and I was quite shocked at my dad's response. I did a show in Edinburgh one year called Cavewoman and in it I told the story of the fact that when I was 17, um, I was pregnant and he didn't know this.
0: So I told him before
1: he came to the show, I did say, look, something's going to come up in the show that you don't know about that happened, you know, a good like 18 years ago, 17 years ago. So I'm just giving you fair warning and, you know, so so you're not shocked. And I didn't specifically say what it was, but uh, then afterwards he came up and he was really, he was like, I'm really proud of you. And he sort of had tears in his eyes and Mm. I was like, oh, like I you know i guess I, I think sometimes our parents worry for us when we're so open yeah about stuff and with jokes and i imagine your dad has the same under the threat of death yeah that he sometimes goes oh you know shappy if you say that that's going to be you know what might happen yeah. you know is there any line that you ever kind of go to with your comedy where they go maybe you shouldn't maybe you need to ease off this because it's
0: I, um, yes, there is. It, it depends. My dad always says it's how much um, criticism you can handle afterwards. Because if you can't handle, you know, the one you throw the rock in the pool, if you can't handle the ripples and, you know, the effect of it, then don't do it because it messes with your head. You know, yeah. you've got to look after your own head. You've got to... There's certain things that I do not engage in on social media because I know they will invite an ocean of... Um, hostility that you simply can't micromanage, you know, during your day. And then suddenly you, you find that your, your day on earth has been spent staring down at your, your phone, feeling all these emotions and having rows with strangers or trying to make your point with someone who is not interested.
1: Who's willfully misinterpreting Who's willfully what you're doing. Who's willfully
0: misinterpreting. And also likewise with um, comedy, I think that... Um, There are certain political situations that I would save for a column, right? Okay, rather than a a stand-up set, because when you write something down on paper, you can be so so much more nuanced sometimes, and you're not seeking um, an immediate laugh. And also, I am a comic. I'm not a satirist. And sometimes I've had, um, you know, people being really upset by something I've said on stage because they disagree with me. That's fine. I I don't have any... um, Yeah, I I don't talk about Iranian politics. I don't talk about Iran at all anymore because, number one, I've said it, I've done it. It's not creatively interesting to me. But then, oh, my goodness, it's just... um, Everyone's got something to say about the way that you have...
1: Expressed yourself. Presented something. That's <laughs> um, interesting that you say you would save it for a column, though, because yeah. that is a, another outlet or another way of reaching a different audience because you write a column for the independent. Yeah, don't... and it
0: can still be funny. Although, mine, Oh, God, when I start writing, I get so serious. <laughs> my, my novel, don't read my novel. It just it's so makes you cry.
1: Um, don't read it, read it, please read it. <laughs> read
0: it. <laughs> please read, Nina's not okay.
1: Um, but, you, but, but you're you able to put across points in a way, but then having said that, I do even think that columns can be misread or, you know, uh, I think sometimes you, we sort of question ourselves as to why we want to put a certain idea or a thought or something out yeah. there. Um, but you had a great, I saw a great column of yours recently that was all about the hijab and women in Iran and why are we not supporting them?
0: I get really annoyed by that. I get really, really annoyed by the left not supporting um, women in Iran who who took off their hijab. They leave all of that up to, um, you know, the...
1: You're just leaving the right right to comment on it if you don't
0: Absolutely. There there seems to be this um, reluctance to criticise political Islam certain things that are going on with the with the Iranian government, whether it's arresting women for taking off their hijab, whether it's our friend Nazlein Ratcliffe, who's been languishing in, in, in an Iranian prison for four years now while her husband Richard is desperately trying to get support
1: from Corbyn, from the left. And do you feel it's more suitable to talk about that in a column on stage? Because I think we've both talked about maybe the hijab on stage before. But do you find that actually that's a better vehicle if you want to talk about something like that than... Um, broaching it on stage I think do you think the audience feel like attacked or no
0: I, th- I think with me with I'm taking a break from sand moment because I want to come back and talk about much more polit- like party political stuff that I right. have been in the in the last sort of few years um I think because I am from Iran it sounds better coming from me perhaps more palatable to people because I know people agree with me but people are so terrified like it would take one, like my friend, was, I'm going to tell you about this. My friend Jenny Colgan, she's a writer and she was writing a um, review of Nadia from Bakoff's book. Right, yeah. Now, authors have a bit of a, it's a bit of a bugbear for them having celebrity writers, celebrity novelists. So she was coming, Jenny, my friend, was coming from a point of standing up for unknown authors who write brilliant stuff, but they don't get publishing deals. But somebody from a popular TV programme has one on her lap. And she said it just seems a bit greedy that amongst all the other things that she's got out of this programme, she also wants a book to take up the shelves. Sadly, I wasn't in the country when she was getting grief on Twitter because I would have fought her corner tooth and nail. But she got accused of being racist. She got accused of not understanding how young Muslim girls might feel, mostly by other white women, I have to say. Yeah, so whose
1: who's behalf are you being offended on? This is a it, Absolutely. question that comes up a lot of the time.
0: Absolutely, and, um, and that really upset me because I've known this woman for 20, more than 20 years and to criticise someone, but I'm sorry, but you're white, aren't you, love? You're white, so if you criticise someone who isn't white, then we're gonna call you a racist. That is a problem that we have at the moment, is shutting down something that someone's got to say. Sometimes, you know what I found interesting was, um, sometimes I stick up for unpalatable causes, and I don't get the grief that, um, you know, a white comic might get because people tiptoe around me a bit more. I, I I believe that because they're so terrified that someone will call them uh, a racist. Is that a, a weird thing to admit? No, I, I no, I think I remember
1: that... the, there was there was sort of some spats on Twitter. I, I do want to talk about one cause which you support sure. where we actually, again, coming back round into sort of comedy for social change. Um, because you you work with a company called let toys be toys and i know you've spoken about this on stage haven't you mm. about having kids and letting them play with whatever toys they want to play with let's yeah. take the gendering out of toys so that a girl doesn't need pink lego yeah yeah she just wants lego yeah. she just wants she just wants to build uh, so you you've spoken about that on stage haven't you yeah and then you teamed up with this
0: yeah, just, just it's like, like a little
1: grassroots organization, absolutely. right?
0: Let Toys Be Toys. They campaign um, against sort of boys' toys, girls' toys. And you know, and actually, what I did say, because John Lewis now um, doesn't have boy closed apartment and girls' closed apartment, <laughs> it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> have you shot yourself
1: in the foot? <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: The bigger picture is wonderful. The bigger picture, but if you do have a kid that
1: loves unicorns, you're like, where's the unicorns? <laughs> um, Who doesn't love unicorns?
0: Yeah, and then some people, high profile people, sort of took my support of that to sort of put me down. Like, I oh, saw she's that. There was nothing it? better to talk about than pink toys and blue toys. Like, well, I've got lots of other things. If you'd like to have a coffee with me, I'll explain.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I feel like. That is uh, what aboutism. It's what aboutery, isn't it? It's kind of going. Mm. Aren't there more important things to worry about, Shappy? And we can say that that was a man, another mm. comic that did that. And I find that very, very interesting. As if we're only capable of caring about one thing at a time. What someone once said to me when I complained about something at a festival um, to you know someone that worked at the festival. <laughs> someone replied with uh, Syria. Like, literally, like, as if, you know, as if, like, why don't you think about that and just stop you complaining? (laughs) Do you know, I think that's really interesting because people's heads are at different places. Like, I've
0: had certain sort of situations where I... I, I you know, like I can't sometimes I can't believe people are walking around being normal when Nazni Ratcliffe's still in prison in Iran. And I have to remember, <laughs> Shafi, this is your thing. Everyone's got their thing, and you just have to do the best you can and campaign the best you can. But the really important thing about comedy and music, I think comedy and music kind of go hand in hand on this is I don't know if you change minds, you know, I very, very much doubt that if Tommy Robinson came to one of my shows he'd go out thinking, do you know what, I'm going I'm to join Humanist UK and volunteer at a Soup Kitchen. I doubt he would do that. However, what you might get is people who have stuff bubbling under the surface that they don't feel they can say out loud. And then when you're a comic that they like and you say those things, then there's that beautiful word empowerment they feel empowered to then be able to stand their ground when their boss is being, you know, inappropriate or whatever. Because I remember absolutely um, feeling like my world lit up and became technicolour when I saw, you know, Ben Elton, which I know now that, you know, he he doesn't have the same sort of political um, reputation as he did back then. But when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, this guy that talked about politics in a way that I didn't even know I agreed with. There were, like, instinctive things that I felt. that I was like, yes, that's my team. I'm going to follow this team. And I watched everything he did, and I got into the young ones, and I got obsessed with, um, you know, any comic that was... Um, like George Carlin, um, uh, Richard Pryor, comics that talked about social issues um, were my gods. They they were very important to me in my self-confidence as a young person, you know, shaping my my world view. And that came from comedy and massively music. Billy Bragg. I go to see Billy Bragg as often as I can, because if too much time goes without me seeing him, I really lurch to the right.
1: (laughs) I always need (laughs) Billy to steer him back. Well, I think I just realised what colours I'm wearing. <laughs> you are in your conservative dress, yeah? Some yes, a tea party after. <laughs> I I was going to ask actually. It's interesting that you you went down that sort of road of uh, you may find someone who's got something bubbling under the surface. I think that's one of the beautiful things about comedy. If you talk about stuff that's rarely talked about, or something that's mm-hmm. very personal, or some demon that you're battling, you'll often get. An email from someone who's seen you at a show. So I just wondered if you would share something that you've received, like an email, or, or after a show, someone said, "Hey, by the way, thank you for speaking about oh, that. a nice thing." Yeah, yeah, like a nice thing, <laughs> not a. Tra- <laughs> yeah. Um. So. So the nicest, like an email where someone said. Thank you for uh, for talking about Iran, or do you, do thank you, know, they, you for talking yeah. about all bisexuality, that, for example.
0: All of that. Um, you see, the bisexual thing is really interesting because I never, I never spoke about it because even even like my closest friends think I'm being a bit silly. <laughs> it's really weird. I should have probably come out a lot earlier, but it was really tricky. So now I'm in a situation where I'm sort of my bisexuality is mostly theoretical. Right. <laughs> 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 but I did feel as as more and more sort of people were being really open about things, I just thought, oh well, this is like a little thing of mine that I don't really talk about. Like all my friends know that I've been out with a couple of girls, but I've never never talked about it or anything. So I've started to and I'm still finding myself. So I haven't just outed you to a room no, full no, of. No, no, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, but but the Iranian thing, I remember going to see Omid Jalili when I was 20 in a show that he did called Short Fat Kebab Shop Owner's Son. <laughs> Great title. And I know. And I went to see it and it rocked my world because I that door of entertainment business, show business, seemed so firmly shut to me. It seems so closed to like this fat, frizzy head sort of, you know, girl that come out of university thinking, I'm going to go to Tamil Nadu and eradicate female circumcision. That's what I thought I would do with my life, but I couldn't get it together to fill in a form. Anyway.
1: But yet you've done Edinburgh shows. I know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. Knew, I, knew I, knew I that saw him be. and
0: I wrote him a letter and I hand-delivered it to the Lyric Theatre in Hammersmith and I left my phone number um, and I said, I want to be a comedian. And he phoned me and he said, listen, just do it. There's lots of little comedy clubs. I, I wrote to 10 of them and only one of them came saying, I can do an hour for you. I've just been <laughs> the toast of the Edinburgh Festival. And only one uh, person got back and said, yeah, you can have five minutes at Bearcat on a Saturday night. And that gave me so much confidence. So I've had um, people writing to me saying that, you know, you're, it's just really mad to see someone with your background. I really relate to the fact that you're out there doing... Being vocal and you know whatever, so that's always nice. And with Nina's not okay, I get addicts writing to me a lot, and um, and they're they're much more personal and much more, you know, the re- the response is an email, not a Instagram message. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And so that is that's a a, a kind of um, yeah, that's an amazing thing um, that makes you feel that it's the same. People did that for me too. You know, Omid Jalili did that to me. Richard Pryor in America, without knowing so, he he opened a door for me in some ways about honesty and truth. I will never be as close to him in honesty and truth, but that's what we all strive for as stand-ups. Yeah, is to get as close to our the truth as possible, and it's so hard. It's so hard, you have to unpick so many layers of yourself.
1: And well, there's some things you don't want to acknowledge about yourself, even yeah. as a stand up where you go, like I'm open. i can't open. pull women.
0: <laughs> i not interested. Men are just turn up, women not interested. That sounded way more arrogant than I meant it to. I was in a room full of 20 somethings, so all right, grandma. Yeah. <laughs>